Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. This is the very first episode of Slapdash, and today we're going to be talking about the history of movies. This is something that we all have a general relationship with, something that we've probably grown up around, but today we're actually going to go all the way back to where it all began and then trace it all the way to where it currently is. Across the desk from me here is Jason Creekmore, so I think he's going to help us wade into today's topic. Jason? Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, let's just get started at the beginning. Let's go all the way back to 1888. The first person credited for creating moving pictures on a screen was a Frenchman named Louis Le Prince. He titled his movie Round Hay Garden Scene, and it was only 2.1 seconds long. The short clip featured his friends and in-laws walking around in the courtyard outside his in-laws' home in Leeds, England. Over the next few months, Le Prince made several public demonstrations of his movie in Europe, uh, but in 1890, Le Prince decided to make the voyage to the United States for a public demonstration, as well as challenge Thomas Edison for the title of Father of Cinematography. However, like all great movies, uh, an interesting twist occurred. On September 16, 1890, Le Prince boarded a train to Paris, and from Paris he was to travel by boat to the U.S. However, after boarding the train to Paris, Le Prince was never seen again, literally vanished just in thin air. There were some subsequent court proceedings involving copyright issues involving Le Prince's family and Thomas Edison, but Edison eventually won the dispute, although many questioned the fairness of those court proceedings. So while Thomas Edison is certainly one of the greatest inventors in history, it was Louis, Louis Le Prince who was the first to produce moving pictures on a screen albeit just for 2.1 seconds. So this is the weird thing about this story, and when you were first sharing it with me, I was kind of thinking through it, and there always seems to be some sort of underlying controversy. So I'm listening to this, and I'm hearing that Le Prince disappeared. Is that right? Without a trace, yep. And Thomas Edison somehow prevailed and and went on to become, uh, did they call him the the father of cinematography? Or There there was some name there that I think was later given to him. Yeah, the the father of cinematography. And what's also interesting is that uh, Le Prince's son, uh, two years later, he was actually found uh, shot to death. So they, they were actually, his, his father went missing, went vanished, and his son actually was, was shot to death a couple of years later. Wow. So, so Thomas Edison here, it, it just coincidentally, I'm assuming, <laughs> or is he a big part player in, in what's kind of going on here? Well, you, you see his name a lot when you're, uh, when you're doing research on this particular topic, uh, especially connected to the uh, Le Prince family. So kind of interesting. Yeah, very Uh, It was only a few years later in 1895 that another name synonymous with early movie development came forward, and that was the name of Lumiere. On December 28, 1895, two brothers, August and Louis Lumiere, conducted a paid public screening on 10 short films. However, these films were considerably longer than Le Prince's, as all 10 of them were between 30 to 50 seconds. The first of the 10 films was called Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory. Oddly enough, by 1905, the Lumiere brothers had left the film industry. Nevertheless, their contribution of a lengthier moving picture was an important step in the movie evolution. 
The next significant development was the birth of the feature film. Uh, up until this point, you know, movies were basically, again, only, you know, 60 seconds uh, or, or less. But in 1906, the story of the Kelly Gang debuted, and it's considered the first feature film as it was a whopping 60 minutes long. So that means in a span of 18 years, from 1888 until 1906, the limit of recording moving pictures went from 2.1 seconds to 60 minutes, which is incredible. Now, one of the major events in movie history was, of course, the introduction of color. And while The Wizard of Oz is thought of as the first movie to use color, while it was a beautiful accomplishment uh, for its time in 1939, the first movie using color was actually with our king and queen through India, which was, which was debuted in 1912. However, the quality of color of this movie paled in comparison to The Wizard of Oz. You know, one thing that kind of sticks out to me when you're talking about The Wizard of Oz is uh, if you've watched it recently or, or at any time in the past, you'll remember that at the beginning, it seems like everything's sort of shot in this sepia tone. It's almost this black and white or this, this orangish tint of a color. And then when Dorothy travels over the rainbow and the, the tornado hits and all these things, she opens up the door and then everything turns into color. And I always thought that was an interesting parallel to the movie industry itself as you're sort of moving from these black and white images over to color. Um, and I think for a time, and, and tell me what you thought about this, I, I, I wasn't sure if the movie had actually been recolorized you know, in the present day. I, I didn't know if that original color was there. Did you ever feel that yeah. way or, or know kind of history there? Uh, no, but I know what you're talking about there because there is that scene where the first, you know, several minutes of the movie, uh, you know, it does feature those sepia tones uh, and it seems much older and then all of a sudden, bam, it's like modern day, you know, colors are there. Uh, but I also kind of picked up on that. Yeah. It's sort of, sort of a neat transition. I always thought that's something they added in later, but it seems to be the history says it's just something that was a part of the original movie, which makes it even more unique. So, very cool. Uh, during the early 1900s and through the 1920s, movies were basically either silent, like those that Charlie Chaplin starred in, or had some degree of music oftentimes played on an organ, which was sometimes located within the actual cinema. They would literally just have someone sitting up there just playing an organ simultaneously you know connected with the with the movie as it was showing but in 1923 that all changed with a movie titled the jazz singer this movie featured the first ever recorded dialogue spoken by actors after 1923 more and more movies began to utilize recorded dialogue however there were many directors and producers who felt that using sound cheapened the effectiveness of the visual product as a result silent movies continued to be made well into the 1930s so with that, uh, you want to tell us a little bit of uh, movie history from the 30s and 40s? So this is widely considered the golden age of Hollywood in the 1930s, um, although it's kind of ironic because the output at this time was still primarily in black and white. It wasn't going to be until several years later when color becomes a little bit more diverse, a little bit more adaptable, and uh, a little bit better economically. So, but this was the decade where a lot of that started to prevail. Sound and color, color revolution started to take over, and we really started to see a different kind of film. And, and not just that, we started to see the idea of the genre film 
emerge. So some examples that were typical of the 1930s include gangster films, musicals, comedies, westerns, and even the seeds were being planted for horror movies, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. So as you stated, officially the silent period really ended in the 1930s. And unfortunately, some of the stars that were really prevalent during that era didn't necessarily make the transition. And as I think about this, I always wonder, well, what were the reasons behind that? And I know there's some famous examples, but, um, you know, a few things come to mind. A lot of the actors during the time were uh, they had certain physiques, certain builds, and they were actors just for the sake of appearance. But when it came to actually putting dialogue and words and emotion into a script, they, they sort of fell apart. One thing that obviously was going on during the 1930s was the Great Depression, and as we'll see, history certainly plays a role in movies, the types of movies that are being made especially, and also general attendance at movies. Uh, We'll see during the Great Depression that movie theater attendance greatly decreased as the economy also did. During this time, there were several noted actors. John Wayne debuts in a movie called The Big Trail. And if you know anything about John Wayne, you'll know he was a great Western star. But unfortunately, in The Big Trail, it absolutely flopped. Uh, The the movie made very little money. Um, It it was sort of a B-movie, and we'll talk more about B-movies here a little bit later on. But it would take another nine years before John Wayne actually rose to the height of uh, the star that he was eventually to become in a movie called Stagecoach, which actually occurred in 1939. You might also remember a, a little... Red-haired girl with uh, <laughs> with, oh, with yeah. the curls. Uh, yeah, Shirley Temple uh, debuts around this time in 1933. Uh, there wasn't a particular movie, but there was a series of shorts that she performed in, just short movies. Uh, it was called Baby Burlesques. Uh, so this was the <laughs> first appearance of Shirley Temple. Also during this time, as you noted earlier, The Wizard of Oz uh, was created in 1939, as well as Gone Gone with the Wind, 1939. And for the very first time in 1930, we saw the adaptation from Disney of a full-length animated film. And just a quiz, do you know what this one was? One of the very first Disney movies. Snow White? It was Snow White. Was yep. it really? Snow, Snow White, White and okay. the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, so. Well, the, the 1930s, I mean, you just mentioned uh, you know, a couple of movies there with uh, Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. I mean, when you talk about movie history, that's probably two of the top 10 or 20 in terms of like most popular and most influential. They're the big ones. And so that's, that's, that's cool that you know, two movies of that significance were that close in time. I find that really cool as well. And as it goes on, we're going to see later in the 70s and the 80s, especially that a lot of the movies that we think very nostalgically about a lot of the classic movies tend to be tied to a specific decade. And it's really interesting to see how those sort of came out of the same time period. So in addition to the movies and actors and the things that were taking place in the 1930s, there were also several industry developments So the Motion Picture Production Code set film guidelines regarding violence, religion, and crime. And for the very first time, we sort to see a a narrowing of the funnel when it comes to creativity and and what's allowed in movies. So uh, in addition to this, we also see that the world's very first drive-in opened in Camden, New Jersey in 1933. And Jason, you recently went to a drive-in, is that right? I was at a drive-in last night. 
So how was that experience? Uh, I love drive-ins. Uh, I wish I had time to go more often. I think that's the second time I've been in in about a month, and I, I just like everything about it. I like pulling up and you know having the kids play volleyball out in the uh, in the field, you know, before the game and. Uh, just having the luxury of watching two movies. Uh, the second movie started at 11.30, so there's uh, zero chance I'm <laughs> I'm up that late <laughs> to watch a second movie. Uh, but I like the idea of having the opportunity to do so if you want to. I love drive-ins. Yeah, so, so the, the legacy of drive-ins has almost persisted for almost 100 years now. And uh, it's really cool to see that we're still partaking in a lot of these seeds that were planted and, and seeing the fruition of these that were carried out so long ago. So in the 1930s, as we've talked about, this was also the sound area. Uh, most of the early talking or, or talkies, as they called them uh, in the early days, they were successful. You know, um, many, unfortunately, though, many were also of poor quality, <laughs> even though they were successful. I think people were more looking for novelty at the time uh, to, to see people acting things out and, and talking in dialogue and being very expressive. But unfortunately, the quality really wasn't there. Uh, we saw a, a lot of dialogue dominated play adaptations. Uh, there was a lot of stilted acting. Because, again, these actors up to this point had never really been required to act in anything more than just body actions. And and there wasn't a lot of expressive emotions and things of that nature. And we also had an unmoving camera. It wasn't going to be until the next decade that we really started to see the camera and really into the later portions of this decade where the camera actually started moving. The microphone became more dynamic. It was really just a straight on shot. And we saw a lot of the action played out just in a very small box. And, you know, something I hadn't thought about, if you think back to the 30s or any of the early movies, one thing that comes to mind is this idea of title cards. Have have you ever heard of title cards? Uh, Yeah, I've heard of them. I think I know kind of what they are. Basically, it's just... I mean, the actors are looking at them, and they just kind of take their cues from those. Sure. So so we have this idea of uh, actors looking at the cards, and then we also have these big displays for the audience to see uh, that kind of tells what's going on in the scene. And I, I never really thought about this. But apparently there, well, obviously there were people who had to write these, these title cards. And when movies transitioned to sound and people started talking for themselves, all of these former title card writers, these people who were responsible for writing, uh, you know, and she felt very sad (laughs) or, and the war began, you know, these sort of things that just sort of flash upon the screen and interrupt the action that was over. And all of these people became unemployed. They all lost their jobs and had to go on to other things. So that's something I really hadn't considered, but certainly. So I mean, even going yeah. back, you know, even going back into the the 30s. I mean, uh, technology sometimes <laughs> uh, has. Uh, you know, sadly, a negative effect right. you know, on uh, employment oftentimes. Yeah, definitely. In this case, that's certainly true. So, you know, the next development in terms of, of moving the industry forward was around this idea of Technicolor. Uh, as we noted previous to this, a lot of films were in black and white. And even though uh, the 30s was touted as the golden age of Hollywood, still yet a lot of the films were in black and white because it wasn't very economical to film in color. But this idea of filming in color would eventually become the norm. And and uh, Technicolor was developed around this time. And the first film, a short in three-color Technicolor, so in other words, having all of the spectrum. Uh, there was a, a, also a two-color genre of Technicolor for a while, but three-color was when everything came into what we would consider as color today. And that was a Walt Disney film called Flowers and Trees, which was filmed in 1932. Now, there is some debate about this. Some people argue that the first ever cartoon was, uh, and I'm going to take a stab at the name here, Ted Eschbaugh's Goofy Goat Antics. 
1931. Oh yeah, Ted, I've heard of that one. That's no, I'm just yeah, joking. Our, our good buddy Ted Eshaw apparently uh, <laughs> was animating at this time, and, and there is some contention around that issue, but officially Disney gets the credit for it. And then in the very next year, in 1933, of course, they would go on to create The Three Little Pigs, uh, which was released during uh, the Depression, obviously. And there was an anthem that emerged from that movie that was obviously related to the movie, but people also sort of adopted it as a Depression-era anthem. And the name of that, uh, oddly enough, was Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? So it's kind of interesting here. Yeah, to to kind of see the parallels between what was going on in that particular film versus what was going on historically in the nation. And that leads us all the way up to the 1940s. So we've covered a decade here. And, you know, one thing that occurred in the early history of the 1940s was it was just not very profitable. We were on the fringes of the, the Great Depression. Uh, as well as, um, you know, sort of following the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, which occurred toward the end of the year, people really weren't as interested in this idea of escapism as they used to be. So whereas in the past we had movies such as King Kong and, and others, people really weren't interested in trying to escape anymore. They were very much grounded in the real, grounded in the now, and and part of that was an emergence of movies and films based around wartime efforts uh, as this started to occur. So Hollywood would eventually rebound and reach a peak between 1943 and 1946, but this was a full decade after the rise of sound and film, and I would have thought that immediately people would have saw the novelty in the sound emergence, but it seemed to be that it took a little bit longer for the movies to to start to take root. And a lot of that has to do with the history. So advances in sound recording, lighting, special effects, cinematography, use of color, such as Technicolor that we previously mentioned, meant that films were a lot more watchable toward the end of the era, and they were much more modern, and they, they started to become what we think of movies today. And as we noted, many war movies were produced during this time because, of course, this was around the time of World War II. Films took on this more realistic than escapist approach tone um, as they had done in the Depression era. And a lot of uh, uh, interesting actors started to emerge here. So we're, we're moving fully into the era of the talkies, right? People who are not only having actions on the screen, but also they are talking, they are uh, having emotions, and they're carrying out all of these different elements that make a good movie. It, it sort of seems like this is the era where really the 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 actor emerges. Exactly. So we have Charlie Chaplin, and, and you mentioned this earlier. He stars in a movie called The Great Dictator in 1940. And obviously this was mirroring what was going on in the wartime efforts. Uh, Charlie Chaplin played uh, a wartime anti-fascist uh, satire of Hitler. And, and I can't remember his name. He actually changed his name so it wasn't actually Hitler, uh, but it was very obviously a, a stab at what was going on in World War II and um, the, you know, all the propaganda and things that were occurring around that time. We also had another uh, uh, big star who emerged, uh, Humphrey Bogart. Uh, oh, yeah. Stars in Casablanca, so in 1942. Uh, it's a black and white movie about two lovers separated by World War II in Paris, and it gave us a lot of uh, memorable lines things that people still say today round up the usual suspects i've heard that so many times here's looking at you kid i don't think i've ever heard anybody with a straight face say that in real life (laughs) but but it's something that it's uh, a famous line it's a famous line it's something that kind of sticks with your head uh sticks in your head and then uh he also said i stick my neck out for nobody 
And I can just imagine these sort of tough guy, 1940s types, saying things like this. You know, it was very – characters were, were a little bit one-dimensional. You had yeah. the good guys. You had the bad guys. You, you really didn't have these shades of gray that you would see emerge later on. Um, so, obviously, in 1941, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention this is when Citizen Kane came out, uh, often considered one of the greatest American films of all time. Um, and there's there's several reasons for that. Some of it had to do with the musical score. Others had to do with the cinematography, the acting, just sort of that it was very narrative and story-based and just sort of brought something to the scene that really didn't exist there before. So one of the, the last things I'm going to mention here is this is also when the, the Tarzan franchise Oh, kind of launched out. Uh, obviously, there were very many movies uh, around Tarzan, and I, I've listed a few here because I think it's interesting that the, the way these played out, it, it's almost, um, they're not comedies per se, they're dramas, but when you hear the titles of these movies, it, it almost sounds like it's a comedy. So we've got Tarzan's Secret Treasure in 1941, Tarzan's New York Adventure in 1942, <laughs> Tarzan Triumphs in 1943 and i love this one because it makes no sense to me in terms of who i think tarzan is as a character tarzan's desert mystery in 1943 (laughs) he's he's a worldly traveler he he certainly is and i'm just you know imagine him swinging uh you know through the the desert sand and and on cacti on cacti uh tarzan and the amazons in 1945 i can see that a little bit that that makes me think jungle uh, as does Tarzan and the Leopard Woman in 1946, uh, Tarzan and the Huntress in 1947, and my favorite, Tarzan and the Mermaids in 1948. <laughs> I think that's that's probably the time it went off the rails. I, I think that was about the end of Tarzan. Uh, yeah, I, I think they uh, just had too many great ideas at that time. Tarzan and the Ewoks. <laughs> so just just a quick reference to a few developments that occurred uh, around this time of, in terms of just the movies themselves. The B movie, uh, you know, continued into the 1940s so there's this concept of having uh, a feature film which is an a-listed movie something that a lot of production value has been put into you've got your top name actors and actresses and uh, you really spend a lot of time on and then on contrast you have something called the b movie uh, which was characterized by short run times reduced budgets recycled actors and even footage they would reuse a lot of the footage from previous movies and stick it right into a brand new movie very cheap production values Uh, it did run at the box office alongside an a feature so a lot of times at the top of the bill you would have uh, the a feature and then right below that you would have the b movie uh, which was a quick way for hollywood to to churn out some additional income and not put a lot of investment into it And that brings us to the end of the 1940s. Uh, Jason, tell us a little bit about the 1950s and 60s. I didn't realize the they would pair the A the the A film with the B film. That sort of sounds like a uh, you know a junior varsity and a varsity game. That's almost exactly (laughs) what was was going on. I wasn't aware of that. The 1950s were a a very interesting time in the history of movies, uh, as perhaps more so than any other decade. The movie industry was heavily influenced by societal events. Uh, From 1948 to 1952, attendance at cinemas across the nation uh, actually dropped by 40%. This occurred because of two major reasons, uh, the end of World War II and the affordability of the television. Uh, 
During World War II, many Americans would attend cinemas to watch footage from the war front as well as then quickly escape the seriousness of war with a Western or a love story. But after the war was over, those who were using movies as a sense of escapism no longer needed to escape, at least from the dangers of a world war. Moreover, televisions were becoming much more common in the American household during the late 40s and early 50s. So instead of regularly going to the movies, many people just stayed home and watched shows like I Love Lucy. In response to the decline in attendance, the movie industry tried several gimmicks to lure people uh, back into the cinema. Of course, 3D glasses were popular throughout the 1950s, but there were several other more publicity stunts during this time. Producer William Castle was the poster boy for coming up with wild claims and devices to promote his movies. In 1958, Castle produced a, a horror movie titled Macabre. To generate interest for the movie, Castle took out a $1,000 life insurance policy for any attendee who died of fear while watching the movie. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. And, of course, the life insurance policy ploy was printed on the advertisement posters. So was that all just publicity, or was this a... a an actual phenomenon, people dying from this movie. No, it, it was just strictly to generate interest. I love it. You know, he, I think he actually took the policy out, but of course, obviously, no one died watching the movie. <laughs> right. uh, but it, you know, it did uh, promote a lot of interest and get people like, well, how scary is this movie? Yeah. You know, and yeah. To, to watch that. A year later, in 1959, Castle produced another movie titled The Tingler. The gimmick in this movie was that Castle actually got many independent cinemas to agree to allow him to install electric buzzers under random seats throughout the theater. The buzzers were designed to send a mild electric shock at specific times during the movie to really startle the viewers. And that blows my mind away because I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine that happening today, but that was the case. I'm just thinking of these experiences. Um, have you ever heard of like the 7D movie experience or whatever? They, they have like sound, uh, touch, video, all this stuff. All your and senses type. Thing. Yeah, so, so some of this stuff was, was already going on uh, at a very yeah. early time. That's interesting. Uh, the 1950s uh, movie industry was also influenced by the nation's fear of nuclear war and radiation. You know, keep in mind this is only a few years after World War II, and the threat of nuclear disaster was on the minds of many people. This fear of nuclear fallout influenced movies that featured radioactive gigantic monsters. Some of these movies included The Monster That Challenged the World, Tarantula, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Them, and Godzilla. Finally, the 1950s saw several movies that focused on the concept of space aliens. A few of these, such as The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951, The War of the Worlds in 1953, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956, heavily influenced the sci-fi genre during the 1960s and all the way even through today. You know, it's really interesting, too, that we hadn't actually been to the moon yet uh, until 1969. So it's really cool that we're already starting to think about what's out there. And I guess to some degree, we've always wondered, but but it's really interesting to me that we already had all these concepts of what it might be like, and we were already creating these stories uh, based on the mystery of space. Yeah, even years in advance. Way yeah. before, yeah. As the calendar turned and the 1960s began, the movie industry once again witnessed improvements in color, sound, and special effects. And as the counterculture was opposing societal norms, the movie industry also began to push the envelope in regard to what was acceptable to moviegoers. 
No other film exemplifies this more than Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. One of the reasons Psycho was so groundbreaking was because instead of featuring a stereotypical monster like Dracula or the creature from the Black Lagoon, Hitchcock told the story of an even more terrifying monster, mankind. The movie focused on a deranged psychopath who appears normal and therein lied the terror. The thought that just a regular man could be capable of such gruesome murder was indeed terrifying. Audiences were accustomed to seeing monsters murder people in movies, but they were not accustomed to seeing the evil that men were actually capable of. Psycho was considered the first slasher film and would go on to influence hundreds of movies. And a few interesting facts about Psycho, uh, Hitchcock shot the film in black and white, although color was available. Shooting the film in black and white helped to save money in production costs. And more importantly, Hitchcock thought that visually the movie was creepier in black and white. And one of the more popular scenes in the movie uh, is when the actress Janet Leigh is attacked in the shower. Instead of using fake blood, Hitchcock used chocolate syrup because it appeared darker on the screen when it was shot in black and white. Hmm. And speaking of Janet Lee, she is actually the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, who would one day go on to be the leading lady herself in the Halloween franchise. Wow. And, and there was some controversy around this film, right? I, I think there was some discussion about it not being released and just... Uh people were upset i mean it's like you said this was a new kind of monster it wasn't some person in makeup it wasn't this uh, costumed lizard man coming out of the swamp it was literally a person it was mankind who was the enemy so i, I find I that mean, interesting it probably by today's standards honestly it would probably be be pg-13 oh, it's very tame i mean yeah it's, <laughs> yeah it's extremely tame but but back then it did kind of cross uh, it, it definitely crossed some lines and a lot of the violence was implied you know, like there, there's a there's a particular scene where he is uh, washing blood off of his hands, hmm. and uh, that was one particular scene that a lot of people got upset, right? You know, uh, over. So there there were several scenes, but it's a it's a captivating movie. The 1960s also saw a shift in interest from cowboys and westerns to outer space, which is just what you just mentioned there just a few moments ago. Uh, this also uh, obviously had connections to the space race that was going on between the United States and the Soviet Union at, uh, at the time leading up to uh, the landing you know, landing on the moon. The most well-known of these movies during the time uh, was the 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Another very influential sci-fi movie of the decade was The Time Machine, uh, based on the H.G. Wells novel. Now, The Time Machine is also one of my favorite books <laughs> of all time, so I wanted to make sure to, to, to give that a plug. And I remember reading that uh, novel in the basement of Whitley City Middle School in the eighth grade. So, uh, shout out to my teacher, uh, Miss <laughs> Stevens, for making me read that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon, did uh, anything interesting happen in the movie inter- uh, industry in the 70s or 80s? Some things, yeah. So just kind of thinking through where we're at at this time period, moving into uh, the 70s, Hollywood was sort of experiencing a financial and an artistic depression, uh, oddly enough. But by the end of the 1970s, it actually went on to become a high point in U.S. film history. And you'll see this when I point out some of the noted movies here in just a bit. Uh, but one of the things that helped to spur on this this um, 
you know, growing film industry was that restrictions on language, adult content and violence loosened up just a little bit in the 1970s. I think that was a reflection of uh, general societal shiftings at the time. And those elements became a little bit more widespread in, in movies. And again, it was this idea of novelty as it was back in the, the 1930s when we had the introduction of sound. Uh, you know, when you see this widespread violence occurring in movies and it's something you've never seen before, in some ways this spurred people to return to the cinema and it may have actually done a whole lot to save it during this era. And of course, politically, there was a lot of different movements taking place in U.S. history during the 70s. You had the hippie movement, the civil rights movement, the growth of rock and roll. There was just all sorts of cultural norms that were shifting the way people felt about things. Uh, hardcore uh, morals that they had embedded in them for, for so long were, were kind of changing and shifting around this time. And uh, there was this emergence of a new generation of filmmakers. So whereas in the past we had these folks who were very concentrated on just the process of making movies, write a script, film it, you know, uh, work on the cinematography, produce it, get it to to the box office, etc. But a new generation of experimental filmmakers started to emerge in the 1970s and some people on the inside called these the movie brats. All right, so we had the Steven Spielbergs, uh, for example. We had the John Carpenters. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we we had all of these influential movie makers, the George Lucases of the air, who were doing different and experimental things with camera angles, with sound, with subject matter, and it, it was very much a dynamic shift. And for a long time, Hollywood rejected that. They really did not want what they call those types of people making movies. But really, these, this was the new generation. And there were several movies that emerged out of this experimental time. Uh, some of the noted ones were Willy Wonka and The Chocolate Factory, obviously based on the novel by Roald Dahl, uh, The Godfather in 1972, uh, The Exorcist, in 1973 yeah that <laughs> we were talking earlier that movie uh that movie freaked me out on on a deep level <laughs> I, I think it, yeah. I, I was, it was like a train wreck i i couldn't i couldn't <laughs> help but watch it but i also wanted to look away at the same time yeah and it was so experimental a lot of the horror movie tropes that we see today really cut their teeth on this uh the exorcist halloween which also came out within the decade in 1978 uh, of course in 1975 we had one of the biggest movies ever, Jaws. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of publicity around that as well. Uh, Star Wars, maybe the, <laughs> one of the biggest franchises, uh, debuted in 1977. And uh, just, just uh, as we were talking about earlier, it's amazing when you look back and you reflect on some of those movies that give you a sense of nostalgia. And, and when I'm looking at this list and I think see things like, oh, Star Wars came out in the 70s, oh, Halloween, The Godfather, Willy Wonka. I mean, just kind of thinking through this, it's amazing how much is accomplished in 10 years and also how much different that was from the decades prior. There was just so many things going on. And one thing that I think is interesting about that list, you know, the, the four movies there, you mentioned The Exorcist, uh, Jaw, Star Wars, and, and Halloween. Two of those movies uh, were uh, 
or I guess actually debuted before I was even born. And then the other two, I was like anywhere between like one to two years old. So, I mean, you know, I was much older before I saw any of those. And, and even to this day, those those would make my top 25 lists. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And, and that's just, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the special effects. It's just everything about it. It was just quality filmmaking. Right. Yeah. And, and if you go back and you look at some of the top 100 must-watch movies, of course, you're going to have your, your Citizen Kane on there and uh, Wizard of Oz and all these things. But you're also going to see a lot of these movies like Jaws and, and especially Star Wars and Halloween and some of these seminal movies that really defined an era and also redefined what cinema was. Uh, and there were a lot of different things going on in the industry at this time. Most notably, we were moving away from the shotgun approach of movie making. Um, producers, filmmakers, executives were looking more toward the Hollywood blockbuster. They, they were less interested in churning out quantity. They were more interested in churning out quality, pouring as much money into it as they could, hoping to get a good return. These were also called event films. And uh, I think Jaws was really the one that put this over the edge. It was one of the biggest blockbusters, one of the biggest uh, event films of the time, and it really clued in these filmmakers that this was the approach to take. So um, during this time, uh, of course, there was also some uh, supplemental markets that were emerging in addition to the box office, including cable television having its first pay and premium channel. Uh, Can you guess what that was? This, this surprised me. I didn't realize this channel had such a history, and it was the first paid and premium channel, almost like subscription-based. Is it, it was, was it? I mean, uh, I guess my only guess maybe would be like HBO? It's HBO, yep. Is that right, really? That's HBO? exactly right, and, and it surprised me. I don't really know why. It seems just, like I can kind of vaguely remember that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think just to some degree I associate HBO with, with current generation, modern, you know, those sort of things. But, yeah, back in the uh, 70s, it was really coming into its own for the first time. And it wasn't alone. There were others. Uh, Viacom Showtime uh, was developed in 1976. The Movie Channel debuted in 1979. Cinemax in 1980. Uh, the Disney Channel in 83 and AMC in 84. And we're going to see uh, a little bit more of that as we go on. But in addition to that, um, you know, it became very important to to the film industry for people to associate the stars and the actors and the actresses with you know being sort of a celebrity status this is really when this kind of came into fruition and previously time magazine uh, at the time was published weekly and they were covering all the major events with cinema and the industry but what ended up happening is time shifted to where they were no longer covering events weekly so at that time uh, a new magazine emerged it's still around today people magazine Uh, it took over the role of celebrity watching and film promotion in 1974 and it was a weekly Publication, and this is where we kind of got the the introduction to this instant gratification, always on sort of mentality when it comes to watching celebrities and seeing what develops, and you know what eventually would become my you know what we see in social media and just it's sort of just a, every day, it's sort of the the first step towards social media, I guess. Yeah, that's really what it was. So at, at this time, a lot of the movies were showing in the middle of the week. Uh, which, you know, today you would say, oh, that's crazy. You know, people are at work. People have school the next day, you know. But, again, this is a developing industry, and it was around this time in the 70s that film industries recognized that in order to maximize profits, they should have the major film openings on Fridays. And they did that. In 1973, they started moving all these major film openings to a Friday. And it seems like an obvious to us, you know, kind of looking at it, well, of course Friday's the best time to watch a movie, uh, but it, it wasn't until 
some studios started experimenting and then gradually everyone jumped on board. So uh, as we talked about in terms of Jaws, Hollywood started advertising movies on television for the first time, following the success of Jaws, just how uh, big of a money earner it was at the time. And I want to say Steven Spielberg was like 27, 28 years old when he made that. And that's just incredible to me. And I I was looking at some of these other movie brats and George Lucas, I I think, was about 33 when Star Wars was made. So it's just it's amazing when you, when you kind of look back and yeah, and kind of see the legacy and the history there and how it originally developed. Um, and then once we finally had you know the the television and, and all of those things and, and movies funneling into that, obviously it wasn't long before the introduction of the Sony's Betamax, which was a precursor to the VCR, the video cassette recorder, and it w- could be bought for the low low price of. in the 70s, right? Is that all? Yeah, and it (laughs) seems seems like a heck of a deal. What's amazing to me is, I mean, this is 1975. I I can't imagine even today going and buying a $2,000 Blu-ray player or, you know, it's it's, it's just kind of crazy to me how much. It's like adjusted for inflation. It's like (laughs) $700,000. Yeah, yeah. So people obviously had to really want this thing. (laughs) They they, they love them some movies. They had to love them some movies. That's it. So also during this time, the the very first video rental store emerged uh, called Video Station. And oddly enough, it was actually uh, launched uh, from a gentleman named George Atkinson. It was his, from his personal collection. So imagine having so many movies at the time that you just open your closet, and that's the very first movie rental store in 1977. It was in Los Angeles. And the can you guess the video rental price? In, in light of the, the Betamax costing $2,000, what, what you, what's your guess on how much a movie costs to rent? The very first one. Uh, three pints of blood. <laughs> I have no idea. Close. $10 a day. I don't know what pints of blood are worth. $10 a day. (laughs) Yeah, so I I thought that was interesting, especially, again, you have to consider we're in the 1970s. I mean, you can go to the movies for a dollar, you know, the actual box office. So it's uh, it's kind of surprising that things were so expensive uh, in that regard. And that's incredible because... uh you know, uh, obviously the uh, video rental business has ex- you know, exploded in the 80s and 90s. And I actually worked at a, uh, a, at a video place, you know, that, that rented out you know, VHS tapes uh, when I was uh, going through college. Mm-hmm. And so that was a booming business. Big time. Uh, especially for probably about a 20-year period, honestly. Yeah, it, it went on and on. And, of course, you know, we all know the story of Blockbuster and, and everything oh, yeah. sort of closing down with the advent of streaming. Uh, that's that's a whole other episode in and of itself that but I think you, would be interesting. You do have Redbox holding on for, for dear life. They are. I've seen a few. <laughs> right now. And, and dear life is right. I mean, it's it's incredible uh, that they're still able to, to work with that business model. But I guess it's sort of the novelty of, yeah. of where they're located. It's It sort of is instant in, in a way, you know, maybe yeah. in the same way that people consider Netflix. But this brings us all the way up to the 1980s. And the interesting thing about the 80s is there wasn't a whole lot of innovation that took place uh, in the beginning, as with the 70s. Uh, A lot of the trends that were started in the 70s, though, this idea of experimentation and moving away from the norms of filmmaking and what had been all the way up to that time period, continued on. So in the 1980s, we see, uh, obviously, Ronald Reagan, (laughs) the former president of the Screen Actors Guild, governor of California, Became the first movie star president in the U.S. in 1981. 
Wow, well, that's that, that's incredible when you really think about that. I mean, you know, because obviously that was when I was a kid, and, and I never thought of Ronald Reagan as, a, as an actor. I mean, Ronald Reagan was the president, you know, and I remember like my grandparents kind of considering him an actor, and I thought, <laughs> no, that's the president. That's not an actor, you know. Yeah, and, and you know, sort of my first introduction to that concept of, oh, Ronald Reagan was an actor is uh, from Back to the Future. I, I don't know if you remember, but... Marty goes back in time and he finds Doc Brown and one of the first things he says is who you know one of them asks who's who's the president <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, Marty says well it, it's Ronald Reagan and Doc Brown just says the actor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I wonder if someday, uh, you know, for President Trump, you know, someone asked him, they'll say, you know, the hotel owner. Right. You know? <laughs> so you know, Ray, Reagan had a very hard-edged approach. You know, he, he's very widely regarded as as one of the um, uh, more hard-edged presidents. Uh, of course, he took a, a heavy stance against the Soviet Union, and a, a lot of this was reflected in Hollywood at the time as well. You had these macho stars emerging that sort of mirrored this mentality of Ronald Reagan. So there were like-minded movies such as Rocky and, and Rambo, and there were these oh. uh, actors you know, that emerged as well. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, Clint Eastwood. I mean, these names just, just to me, just like shout masculinity. <laughs> they're, they're all the same person. I have some dandy Chuck Norris jokes. I'll tell you later. I have some, <laughs> I have some good ones. All right, I'm gonna hold you to that. Uh, so, some of the noted movies around this time was uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yeah, uh, I cried. <laughs> it's a good one, right? Uh, very emotional movie, 1982. Uh, Ghostbusters, 1984. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think. The, the team who's still around is getting back together for another hurrah. Yeah. I love that movie. Uh, I mean, I, I watched E.T. In, in the theater. I remember that. I was really young. But I remember that. And I definitely watched Ghostbusters. I mean, I was all in on the the Ghostbusters uh, backpack for Christmas and, you know, making my ghost traps. I was <laughs> I was all in on Ghostbusters. I was sold. The ghost traps. That's yeah. exactly right. I remember those. Uh, and, and also, you know, we, we had Back to the Future, as we just said, in 1985. I mean, I mean, these movies are just so ahead of their time. I mean, I, I remember them so fondly as a kid and even as an adult. You know, you can't get through a year without seeing one of these movies playing on AMC or, or some of the classic movie channels. Uh, we also had Top Gun in 1986, Die Hard in 1988. And, you know, based on this, again, this trending idea of the blockbuster movie, Right. It was no longer let's just churn out as much as we can. Let's just release as much as we can. It was really, you know, to the movie company's benefit to turn out these event movies. But the problem was it was kind of difficult to determine which of those high dollar films would become popular at the box office. You know, there, there were several where a lot of money was poured in, but not a lot of money came back. But. There were a few surprises. Uh, there, there were a few that the money was poured in. There wasn't a great expectation that it would do very well, but it really surprised the filmmakers and the audience really uh, clamped onto it. Some of those include The Terminator in 1984. I mean, I, I have so many memories <laughs> with The Terminator. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors in 1986. Oh, I love that. Yeah, good, yeah. good, good movie. Um, and, and if you think about that, I mean, Again, these are very experimental in nature. You know, we're moving away from the, the 
well, obviously, we're very far removed from Charlie Chaplin and Humphrey Bogart and all these uh, types of movies. But things like The Terminator, you know, just the storyline there and, and the background and how that really set up science fiction and what was to become a whole new genre. Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, I could see that as such a gamble. You know, somebody yeah. literally... Because it made no sense. <laughs> no sense at all. I, I mean, on paper... It, it was a horrible idea. It was terrible. <laughs> you know, and you have this plant and it's uh, growing large and it's eating people and there's a love story in there and I don't know I mean it's it's just kind of crazy that somebody walked in with a straight face and pitched this to some filmmakers and and they made it and obviously the rest is history because uh, I will tell you that a couple years ago and I think you were there I was we went to see a stage play of Little Shop of Horrors and lo and behold it's it's still out there. My, <laughs> old, my oldest daughter, when she was about probably uh, eight or nine years old, she had a, a T-shirt mm-hmm. <laughs> with with the plant. I think it's a. Uh, so I forgot the name. What the, what the plant's name was? Seymour. Uh, that's it. Seymour. Yeah, Seymour's the shop owner. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah. So we we were big fans of that. We loved it. And of course, you know, Steve Martin was the the dentist. Oh, that's right. In the movie. Yeah. It's just that movie's off the rails. It's a classic. <laughs> but it's no really doubt. good. Yeah. So on the heels of that, uh, three years later is uh, a movie that is one of the biggest movies of all time. It really spurred a whole new genre. And I think you're going to speak to this here in just a little bit, but the superhero genre, it was kind of struggling. Yeah. There, there were really not a lot of uh, breakout hits, uh, but someone took a chance on Batman in 1989. And, and just thinking about Michael Keaton and, and this this role that he played. I mean, he, he's he's one of my favorite actors of all time. And it just, I, he's so iconic in this role of Batman. And uh, again, you know, this is based on, on the work of Bob Kane and, and Bill Finger and the, and the DC universe. But up to this point, you know, if you had superheroes in movies, it wasn't as gritty, you know, it wasn't as straightforward uh, as we see in, in Batman. It, it was really kind of a serious take on something that up to this point had been sort of comical in nature, you know? Um, So movies began to be made around this time only if they could guarantee financial success. Uh, Film decisions at this point were in the hands of people making the financial decisions and not the filmmakers. Now, this had pros and cons. Obviously, the big con is you can see lack of creativity. If the filmmakers aren't able to decide what type of material is being made, a lot of these big gains that were made by the experimentalists and, and some of the outgrowth of these movie brats and those sort of things you know, couldn't exist in a world where the filmmakers were making all the calls and saying what could be made. The pro there, though, is that more money was starting to get funneled into these projects. And, you know, we would see the emergence of even bigger films with bigger budgets. And, you know, a lot of the technologies that were to evolve came out of this era. Um, you know, and as an outgrowth of that, a lot of the film stars during that time said, you know, there, there's such pressure on us to perform now you know it's no longer like it used to be where this was just sort of a nine to five job Uh, there is an expectation that we make money and lots of money and in some (laughs) cases they could do it in other cases they couldn't so they started to demand to demand higher salaries you know uh, in in some cases for your top performers uh, in the highest dollar films they can make 20 million dollars back in the 1980s off of these movies that they were starring in and you know one of the final things I'll say about the 1980s 
you know, it's interesting here that we've went all the way back from, from the roots because we've talked a lot about this idea of color, right, and black and white and how they coexisted for a while and then black and white went away and the color fully took over. But there was some controversy in the 1980s because new techniques were being developed on computers where old movies could be colorized. And I don't know, have you seen any of these movies that's been colorized? Uh, I have, yeah. I've, I've seen, uh, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I, I have seen, uh, I think, several you know, several of those. And uh, it's just a little different. I mean, uh, t- to me, it's like when you when you go in to watch a movie, like, like if, if I'm going to watch Psycho, uh, I'm expecting black and white. And that's what I'm going to, to watch, you know. And it, it is a little bit different. Uh, I don't want to say that it's tainted by no by no means, but uh, but I think I really much prefer the original. You know, like for instance, uh, one movie uh, that we haven't talked about, uh, but it was it was in the '60s. Uh, it was George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. You know that that's a movie obviously where color was available. Right. Uh, at that point. Uh, but the way that movie was shot, you know the you know in the, the black and white manner, I thought it made it. Uh, much more you know, horrifying. It's interesting you mention that because that's one of the few black and white movies that I saw colorized, uh, and I can say that it's it's completely different. Uh, what's interesting about the colorization process is that with the black and white movies, obviously some parts of the spectrum are just completely black. If you're looking at the background, whereas in newer movies you might be able to pick out a few of the details, some of the objects in the background, with the black and white movies, a lot of that just sort of faded in. So what happens with these colorized versions is essentially the people working on it, uh, you know, and digitizing this colorization process have to make guesses about what was in that background. Because if you just paint that background black and, and you have all this color in the they foreground. They have no idea. They have right. no idea. So that was one of the contentions that a lot of the movie purists took is that you are changing this film in a fundamental way. So, you know, in the example of Night of the Living Dead, uh, as you said, a lot and Psycho, even going back to that, a lot of the tension, a lot of what made the movie the movie was that it happened on this black, white, and gray backdrop so when you add color to that obviously it changes some of the tone that the original filmmakers intended Uh, some of the notable movies that were also colorized in the 80s included king kong uh, from 1933 casablanca from 1942 uh, and it's a wonderful life in 1946 and there were several others there was some talk about citizen kane being colorized and as far as i know it never has been. So that was a big contention for a long time. And that leads us to the end of the 80s. So, Jason, I'll turn it over to you for the 90s. Well, the 1990s was the time that a little something called CGI was introduced. Now, CGI stands for Computer Generated Image. There were several movies that used this technique, uh, including Jurassic Park in 1992 and Casper the Friendly Ghost in 1995. Also in 1995, uh, Toy Story was the first ever feature-length movie that used CGI exclusively. A little later in the 90s, movies like Titanic, The Matrix, and Star Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, also relied heavily on CGI. And Shannon, as I was doing a little bit of research on this, uh, Star Wars Episode One premiered in 1999. Mm-hmm. That's been 20 years ago. I can't believe it. And that makes I me see, feel like I'm 108 years old. Because, yes. I mean, I could have swore that was like eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Not 20. Right. And, and you know, talking about the CGI, whenever you go back and watch a lot of those movies, you know, at the time I remember watching them and thinking, 
man, nothing could ever look better than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that lightsaber right. is, is really in that scene. <laughs> you know, Jar Jar Binks is a real thing. <laughs> you know, all of that just seems so real. We have arrived. But have you ever went back and tried to watch one of those movies recently? It's, it's a little different. It, yeah. it the, looks... the expectation is, just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so it's uh it's a whole different beast when you try to try to look at these old they they haven't aged well. I'll just say that. Uh, the 90s was also known for the lone hero having to go to war with a group of terrorists or a drug cartel or something of that nature. I think you had mentioned that a little bit earlier like with Rambo and um with uh, Sylvester Stallone and uh, uh, Chuck Norris and you know, people of that kind of caliber. There were literally dozens of movies that followed the same basic storyline and had similarities to uh, 1988's Die Hard starring Bruce Willis. So the 90s were just full of these hero action shoot 'em up movies. I right. mean, they, they were coming out every weekend. And I think the the you know the acting of it kind of got away a little bit and started to focus a lot more on action and, yeah, a lot and of, sequencing, a lot of fire, <laughs> a lot of fire, a lot of explosions. Uh, you know, a lot a lot of things that would mi- make uh, uh, Michael Bay very happy <laughs> in present <laughs> yeah. day. Uh, the nineties also showcased some uh, quality horror movies uh, as well, such as Misery uh, in nineteen ninety, Silence of the Lambs in nineteen ninety one. Scream in 1996, and The Sixth Sense and The Blair Witch Project, both from 1999. Wow. And last but not least, the 2000s. Now, there have been a lot of great movies uh, from you know 2000 to uh, 2019 in, in virtually every genre. But when you're talking about the 2000s, you can accurately refer to this as the era of the superhero. Obviously, you had Superman and Batman in the 80s and 90s, but in 2000, X-Men was released, and there was no looking back. And while DC comic book characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman certainly have drawn in moviegoers, it can't even begin to compare to the movie success of the Marvel comic superheroes. In fact, there have been uh, 58 movies based on Marvel comic book characters totaling over $14 billion in gross ticket sales. Uh, To look at it from a different perspective in terms of success, movies featuring Marvel superheroes represent eight of the top 25 highest grossing movies of all time, seven of the top 20, five of the top 10, and two of the top five. And Shannon, I would like to uh, wrap up this episode by actually providing a list of the top 25 highest grossing movies of all time. I'm going to go ahead and guess that. Are are there some Marvel movies in there? I believe there are. Okay. (laughs) I believe there are. (laughs) Number 25, Skyfall. Of course, I think that's the James Bond, one of the James Bond movies. Yeah, and there's a bunch of those. I think so. Number 24, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Is that is that the third one? I think that's the last one. I am not well-versed in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that's something I've just never really gotten into. I don't know. Man, you're going to have some angry comments on, on this episode. <laughs> that's okay, though. I, I think uh, Return of the King was the, yeah, it was the finale of it, the trilogy. Uh, it, it debuted in 2003. Okay. So I think that's right. Okay. So that was 24. Number 23, recent movie, Captain Marvel. Number twenty-three. Wow, I got, it's it's interesting that a movie that recent has already broken into yep. the, the twenty-five highest of all time. I actually saw that and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, number twenty-two, Transformers: Dark Side of the Moon. Hmm. So is that is that one of the sequels or was that one of the? I think that's one of the sequels. 
That's surprising to me because uh, I, I know there was some criticism of the, the first movie, so it's interesting that one of the sequels yeah. actually broke into the top 25. Uh, number 21, and I actually watched this one as well, Aquaman. Okay. So DC yeah. shows up there at 21. Uh, number 20, Captain America Civil War. And I know a lot of uh, Marvel fans uh, really think that this one may be like the best, or at least in, in, in the top three uh, in terms of the Marvel uh, movies. Number 19, this one kind of surprised me, uh, Minions. Okay. Yeah, that kind of does too. So that's an offshoot of, um, what's the movie, Despicable Me? Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of another sequel or spinoff, I guess you call it. Yeah. Uh, Number 18, Iron Man 3. Yeah, no surprise there. Number 17, The Fate of the Furious. I think that's one of the uh, the Fast Fast and Furious Furious. movies. Yeah. Uh, Number 16, Incredibles 2. Number 15, Beauty and the Beast. Not the cartoon that was. I was going to say. So this was the, was this was the live action? Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Right. Wow. That that kind of surprises me too. Yeah. Number fifteen. And that's ahead of Captain Marvel and Iron Man three. Yep. And, okay. Yep. Uh, number fourteen is Frozen. Number thirteen, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. Number twelve, Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Number eleven, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Part two, that's uh, in honor of Becky Hamilton there. She likes Harry Potter. <laughs> right. uh, number 10, Black Panther. All time, number 10. Wow. And, you know, Black Panther for a long time in the Marvel canon was, was kind of relegated to the side. Uh, but I see, when I saw that movie, I thought I was really, I really felt like I was watching something special, on, you know, on the level of like the Avengers, which I'm just going to assume Avengers is, is coming up here at some point. But it's really cool to see Black Panther getting his due uh, in in this scope because it was, uh, it was actually a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, number nine, Avengers Age of Ultron. Called it. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Number eight, Furious 7. And that really shocks me that... Two of those movies are in the top 25 of all time. And I, I saw the first one, but I never saw the rest of them. I, so. I didn't either. And um, it yeah, just shocks me. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah. Number seven, uh, Marvel's The Avengers. Number six, Jurassic World. Was that one on there again? Uh, this one's from 2015. Okay. Uh, number Okay, the top five. Number five, Avengers Infinity War. And that's the last one that just came out, right? This that's, was the, that's the second one, the, the next to last. Okay. That came out. That came out. So this was this was part one of that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Number four, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Number three, Titanic. And and if you're thinking about the years that these movies were made, and I, I knew Titanic was coming up um, because for a very long time it held the number one spot yeah. for so many years, and um, it's interesting to me that it's still holding on. I mean, we're talking about a movie. That is literally bigger than the Avengers. It's 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 twenty two years old. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Uh, number two, Avatar. Yeah, I can see that. And number one, all time, weighing in at two million, or I'm sorry, two billion seven hundred ninety million two hundred thousand is Avengers Endgame. Man. That's the highest grossing movie of all time. And one interesting point when you look at this list. Uh, only one movie of the 25 uh, came from the 90s. Every movie on this list was from 2000 forward. Which really speaks well to what James Cameron was able to do in Titanic 
all those years ago. I mean, it's it's really kind of crazy. And, and am I right? Is Avatar also James Cameron? Do you, yes. Is that, yep. Okay. And I've I've heard rumors that um, there's there's like five or six sequels in the work for Avatar, uh, which kind of blows my mind because. I feel like it's been a long time since Avatar came out. Do you have the date on that? Uh, Ten years. Ten years, yeah. We, yep. We've not even seen the first sequel, but you know what? If you make the first ten with the movie, you better go ahead and count on the sequel <laughs> coming down the way. So so the number one movie of all time, then, is Avengers Endgame. Yep. Uh, uh, yep, Avengers Endgame, number one, Avatar 2, Titanic 3. Wow. So, Shannon, did any of those uh, movies on that list surprise you or jump out to you or anything? I mean, there were a couple for me. Like I said, the the Furious movies, I didn't really anticipate that. And honestly, I didn't really anticipate Frozen being number 14. I liked it. My girls liked it. We all built a snowman. Everything's great. <laughs> but I didn't really foresee that being 14. And I don't know if Disney did either. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm surprised about Beauty and the Beast, I think, being on there. If it's not the um, not the, the feature-length cartoon. Because I, I know it was well reviewed, but in general, I, that's just not one of the movies that come to mind when I think, oh, there was a lot of people interested in this. But maybe again, it was the novelty of it because this was Disney taking one of their beloved classics, turning it into a live action film, something that they're doing a lot of here recently. Just saw The Lion King, very interesting uh, adaptation into the uh, full movie. Uh, experience the live action experience but yeah I I would say that was surprising and also I I guess it's not surprising but it's very interesting to me that Titanic has held on for this long and still exists in that top 25 list so I I think uh, I'm kind of at the end of the material I have here so Jason do you have anything else to add I think that's a wrap for me Very good. So this is the end of the first episode. Thank you for joining us on Slapdash, and hopefully you'll join us for the next episode. Have a great day. Take care.